This episode is brought to you by Just Egg. It's a butter egg made from plants. Bring more customers in your doors with Just Egg. Start with a free sample at ju.st hrn. With our growing season just around the corner, we're sowing seeds of knowledge and empathy on this week's episode of Meet and Three through four unique stories. I'm always shocked at how aggressive people are with their language. I'll have something like Japanese knockweed and they'll say, you know, these are terrible, they're they're foreigners, they're invasive, and you know, but they're also, you know, they're really healthy if you eat them. We're surrounded by seeds that have already adapted to live with us and they're actually already kind of living in the future because cities are hotter and they're more polluted and they're more fragmented and these are the plants that can deal with that. Tune in to Meet and 3, available wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, hello, Heritage Radio Network listeners tuning in from 165 countries around the world, about a million listens a month. And today, I'm 100% certain that every single one of them is listening to Tech Bites, the weekly show where we look at the intersection of food and technology. And food and tech has never been more important in this crazy pandemic world that we live in. Restaurants and in-person live experiences have been closed for almost a year. Depends on where you live in the world, but here in New York City, we are coming up on the one-year anniversary of everything completely shutting down. Restaurants, bars, stores, museums, theater. So in the void of real person experiences and out of a combination of wanting to see people, wanting to work, and wanting to continue to do business... Lots of intrepid restaurant hospitality and theater people have created ways to present an online digital experience to their customers and fans to try and recreate some of that liveness that we get in restaurants. And as we always say on this show, every time we talk about a new piece of technology and a new trend and a new thing that has come onto our phones and into our lives Restaurants are always running to catch up to technology and what the marketplace is putting in front of them. You know, at the very beginning of this show, when we started back in 2015, we did a boot camp episode on how to deal with Instagram, how to deal with social media. You know, a lot of questions about, do I need an online presence? Do we need a social media footprint? And all of those questions have been answered today. The answer is yes, you do. You need them. But how do you navigate them? People open restaurants and people open bars and, and become sommeliers and create food and open shops and bakeries because they love making things with their hands to give to people. They love making pizza and cocktails and creating a great experience for you. They're not about how to create a virtual online production using multiple social media platforms and digital cameras. That's just not what it's about. It's not the Top Chef Zoom challenge. So it's yet another thing that restaurants have to learn how to do very quickly to create an online virtual experience while the in-person live experience is a little bit on hold. So today we have assembled um, a really great panel of three people who 
have become uh, really expert in creating virtual events from different points of view. And we're going to talk through a very step-by-step boot camp episode of how to put on a successful virtual event. Um, some of the voices you will have heard before, some of the voices are new. First up, we have um, David Bengal, who has been on the show, episode 227, which was about Bollywood Kitchen. He is a um, director of photography, video production person from the theater world. And um, he had the challenge of how to turn uh, dinner theater into a live virtual interactive event. So we're going to welcome back, David. Thank you for joining us again this morning. Hi, nice to be here. We also have Belinda Chang, who was on episode 226. She is a longtime uh, friend and colleague. She has spent many years, many, many years working in hospitality, most notably. Um, I first met her when she was working with my husband at the fifth floor in San Francisco a thousand years ago. Um, but she was a uh, live in-person sommelier who managed last year to completely transition her business onto the internet, uh, not only just to the success of her own business, but also to the point that other PR and marketing companies are hiring her to teach their people how to do a virtual event. So we're going to welcome back Belinda Chang and get some of her pro tips on how to make that happen. Thank you for calling from Chicago. Thanks for having me, Jen. I want to be also known as episode 226 now. (laughs) (laughs) Yay. (laughs) Yeah. Um, And then we have a new voice today. We have Kristen Madden, who is vice president at Bowen and Company. And Bowen and Company is, you know, many of you who are in the industry will recognize the name as an event production company. And she has worked with multiple organizations, some of them nonprofits, um, to produce large-scale virtual events over the course of last year, replacing the in-person galas, replacing the in-person dinners, replacing the in-person fundraisers, and how do we successfully um, negotiate that in terms of, you know, maybe producing and editing and recording a live event that you then broadcast, um, you know, like TV shows happen nowadays. So, Kristen, thank you for joining us as well. Thank you, Jennifer. It's great to be here. It's really exciting, and I'm always happy to really uh, provide a nuts and bolts kind of back-to-basics episode, because so much of this is is new for people. Um, people who do kind of office work are sitting in front of computers and are perhaps more familiar with Zoom meetings and all the different platforms, but restaurant people, you know, hospitality people, that's not what their businesses are about. And so, you know, amidst all the stress of changing and reconfiguring and delivery and services and online and all that kind of stuff, you know, we've seen a lot of people over the course of the past year turning to virtual events. Um, And I know that all of the experts that we've talked to on this show have said that restaurants need to create omni-channel revenue streams. And that's just a fancy way of saying you need to make money in more ways than having people sitting down in your restaurant, because even though things are looking up, it's still probably going to be a little bit of a long haul. And it's not bad to have multiple revenue streams coming in to your business, um, because it's just smart business anyway. So let's start from the very, very beginning. Um, You know, all of you have worked with clients in different ways. And if you had a 
restaurant or a wine company come to you and say, we want to start doing virtual events, what would be the first question or series of questions that you would ask them? Let's start with you, Kristen, because I know that you come from a very um, sort of storytelling point of view, and, and the first questions you would ask might surprise people. Sure. Yeah. You know, I mean, as you said, I work with a lot of nonprofits and organizations, and I think you know, when I'm when I'm in the live realm, I'm always coming at everything from a mission perspective. So I think if you're sort of sitting down and hatching your plan for this, you know, tiptoeing into the virtual realm, I think you have to ask yourself those same questions of what are your goals? Why do you want to host a virtual event? Um, are you building your brand? Are you raising awareness or money? Um, is this a revenue stream, as you were mentioning? Are you driving customers to your restaurant or to something else? Do you have a cookbook that you're promoting? Um, there's education, communication. So I sort of look at, you know, the building blocks like a puzzle. So first I would sit down and I would say, why do you want to host this gathering? And all the decisions that you make to follow, to me, always have to funnel back to those goals to make sure that you're achieving something. If you're going to put your time and resources into this, you want to make sure that at the end you can look at it and say, right, that's achieving that goal or I can measure that. So I think that's one of the first questions I would ask somebody if they if they came to me to plan something. Belinda, when you and I spoke um, previously, both on the show and, and off, you talked about building virtual events much in the same way as you would open a restaurant or create a new um, you know, category. If you're a restaurant that was only open for dinner, maybe you're going to open for lunch. And you really talked about setting up a virtual event and starting to ask some of those same questions that you would that would be very similar to an opening. What would be the first questions that you would ask? Um, well, it's similar to Kristen, but also slightly different. It's what kind of experience are you trying to provide? I mean, obviously, there is an end goal to this experience, whether it's to sell tickets to something and or to fundraise. But for me, the first question is, how do you want to make the audience feel, right? Whether it's an internal audience uh, of teammates or it's an external audience of clients or hopefully donors. Um, so I think much like with the opening of a restaurant— we're trying to first, I think the really great restaurateurs figure out what it's going to be like for the person who's going to come through the doors and in this case, log on. <laughs> <laughs> in, in both of these scenarios, you need to identify who you're, and it's interesting, Belinda, because you use the word audience instead of customer yeah. or client. And I think if we were talking about a restaurant on-premise experience, you would have not said audience. And I think that's an interesting uh, differentiator. Do you need, you know, in that in that first series of questions of what kind of experience are you trying to provide and, and why do you want to do this, do you have to identify who that audience or customer base is? I think so, absolutely. I mean, like Kristen, my team's been doing a lot of sort of foundation work and conversion of virtual galas from standalone in real life galas. And so I think there are a lot of people who can appreciate a gala experience in an audience and also in a guest. If we're doing sort of a chamber music foundation 
fundraiser. There can be the person who we don't charge for a ticket and who can watch the whole thing on Facebook Live or Instagram Live and maybe not buy that pricey experience box and, you know, not buy the table, which is actually really a private salon (laughs) or i.e. a breakout room these days. So I think what's cool about virtual experience is now we don't just have the traditional guest and that same sort of guest demographic. We now have a really wide-ranging potential audience to hear the message slash learn about the brand slash experience the thing. (laughs) In your experience, how well do restaurants and hospitality businesses know who their audience is? Well, I think that, you know, even to just quote Danny Meyer, who's another previous um, mentor and boss, you know, sometimes it takes a restaurant concept a few cycles and even a few years to find who they're serving, who they're ideally serving, who their audience is. I know he used to always like to say, you know, concepts like Union Square Cafe and Gramercy Tavern, like, they, and look at 11 Madison Park, I mean, has gone through so many different iterations, incarnations, and visions, if you will, to find the one that, you know, won all the big awards and maybe is the one that's going to stick for a while. But I take that back now because then it all changed over the pandemic. But <laughs> I think that that's something that can take a little time. But I think the closest you can get to clarity on that in the initial set of questions for what are we doing here in this virtual engagement or this virtual experience will certainly help you get to success and ROI more quickly. Oh, ROI. That's a marketing term. Tell us what ROI means. (laughs) ROI is return on investment. And as the things that I'm doing, as you noted, are for generally brands and for businesses these days, we're always looking for if they're going to pay me, what are they going to get? So I like to be able to respond to that after asking this initial set of questions. ROI can be measured in a lot of different ways. It's sort of deciding how you're going to determine whether or not your event is successful. And whether or not your event is successful goes back to what Kristen was talking about earlier. Why are you hosting this and what are your goals? If your goals are to make money, then you'll see if you made a profit. If your goals are to increase your email list for clients, you'll see how many you got. If your goal was to Um, raise the number of Twitter followers or Instagram followers you have, you'll be able to see that also. So when you're outlining what your goals are, it's nice to also connect them to an actual number or an actual metric, which definitely hospitality people are very good at in terms of putting together a PNL and finding out, you know, what the prices, what your percentage price is, you know, for the plate and then what you charge and how much profit you make. So let's 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 create just a, a simple event that we can build together for the conversation just to have something realistic to talk about uh, so that people understand. Let's say that you know I have a restaurant in New York City. I'm closed. Um, I'm at 35% dining right now today. <laughs> I may be doing outdoor dining, weather permitting. Um, And I want to do uh, virtual events. I want to do a weekly virtual event. I want to rotate through uh, my chef, my pastry person, maybe bartenders, maybe cocktail, maybe sommelier. Um, I want it to be um, a somewhat interactive event for people. I want it to be something where 
Um, we can continue to stay in contact with our customers, but I want there to also be an opportunity for people to make a donation to attend, just like $10 to log on or something like that. And then I also want there to be an opportunity to send a box of something for people to have the experience at home. So if it's a chef doing a class, I want to be able to send people a box of ingredients. If it's a sommelier, I want to be able to send some wine and things, um, cocktails, likewise, ingredients, you know, and, and different things like that. So let's say, you know, I want to, you know, today I, I want to start it in a month. I want to have it be once a week um, and go on sort of like in perpetuity and see, you know, how much business we can build um, to promote then delivery and all those other things. And I would say that economic revenue and and sort of creating another revenue stream for the restaurant would be sort of the 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 most important thing um, because that's really what we need to do right now is to have multiple revenue streams. So with that idea in mind, um, you know Kristen, how would you how would you scope like um, your first questions and what would your first answers be and then what would be the next the next layer? Right. Well, I think I would start with I would start with audience and kind of what experience you want to create. Um, as we were talking about before, if this is going to be kind of a fun, casual, interactive, um, uh, I'm doing something right now um, with the James Beard Foundation where we are uh, sort of translating an experience in that way, where we're having guests pick up a um, three course takeout. Uh, meal experience that goes along with a broadcast that everybody from across the country gets to join that night. So I love the interactive layer of um, the the meal kit or the being able to taste what you're watching. So I think I would start with the content, you know, what, um, who's going to participate in this and kind of sketch out what the production will be and then delve into, you know, what platform we'll use to reach our audience and um, think about that interactive layer, which is a logistical piece. Uh, if we're going to be um, sending out kits or having kits pick, picked up, um, it would be great to have a tiered experience where you can have, you know, the people who are local who can receive your um, your meal and your tasting experience, but also have a way for people far and away to to join as well and just kind of look in if they can't get there in person. So before we get to shipping the boxes and the pickup. Um, which we will get to. Let's talk. Let's start to talk now about the production aspect. And I'll note that there was a lot of discussion about sketching out the event before we even get to production and technology. When you talk about sketching out the production, um, Kristen, what types of things are you talking about? Well, um, I would think about sort of a, a, the show flow. Uh, who is going to be our cast of characters that we want to feature? I know as you were describing this virtual event um, concept, it sounded like um, we wanted to feature different people and personalities at the restaurant. So if it's going to be one at a time, um, figuring out, you know, what that content piece is, um, the storytelling piece so that you can provide access to your audience to 
yourself and really let people in. I think keeping it really personal that way and figuring out what that content piece is. And then if you're demonstrating uh, a recipe or you're going to be demonstrating uh, a technique for your audience, thinking about... um, you know, different than a live experience where you would stand up in front of your crowd and you would demo it, you really have to think of uh, the camera angles and how you're going to let people in to what you're doing. And so you sort of have to think about it through a different lens of what is the audience experience at home, not with you live. So what are they seeing? What are they tasting? How are they participating? If it's Uh, sort of a Zoom style event, say, that they're able to ask questions and interact, um, which is more of an intimate experience because there's only sort of so many people you can do that with effectively. Um, And making sure that you're creating an environment to welcome them into uh, in terms of your setting and your lighting and all of the details so that you're really welcoming people into your restaurant just in a virtual way and that you're conveying that mood, that setting, the tastes, you know, um, and your personality and it feels really intimate. I think looking at a way that we can create all of those things in the setting um, that people are so hungry to experience. I think right now, especially where we've all been apart for so long, how can you capture that live experience through a virtual lens? And it's just, it's kind of, I think it's a tweak on the same thinking and strategies you use in a live event, which chefs and restaurateurs are hosting a live event seven nights a week usually. So I think um, it's just kind of a twist on that same thinking and always considering the audience experience. So David is really our theatrical technical production expert. He is currently working on a live dinner theater experience that is actually produced and recorded in someone's apartment in New York City, which is a big difference from being in theaters in New York City. That's right. Um, Very, very different. But many, many of the same challenges um, in terms of, you know, a theater is a venue where it is built for an audience. It is built to optimize the performance. You have the lighting and the technology and all of the things to really enhance it, similar to a restaurant. Restaurants are built for the diner experience, the type of chair, the seating, the music, the flow, the lighting, so many details that um, hopefully the customer is never aware of go into optimizing that experience for the diner and the performance of the kitchen and the front of the house. So David, when you had to translate a live theater experience into a live production from you know, somebody's home with limited resources and limited staff. What was your first sort of series of questions and answers? And how did you start to roadmap the production and the technology? Yes, that's a good question. You know, this is, this project that you're talking about is one of a number that I've been working on this uh, last few months where the broadcast is happening from, or or a part of the experience is happening from within, someone's home. Uh, and, and 
one of the first things that we need to do is basically location scout that place that you're going to use. Try to figure out you know, how are you going to use a space that maybe wasn't traditionally meant to as a production venue and turn it into one. So maybe there are ways of rearranging space or using areas within that environment that you hadn't thought of um, before you're trying to make it part of a virtual event. Um, thinking about lighting, thinking about uh, where you're going to put the cameras and how you're going to move around through that space. And I think it's really very useful to do some test sessions where, you know, before you have uh, an entire audience there or before you're even trying to put everything together with all of the different folks who might be part of the production team to do a kind of initial scope out and try to set up a little bit of the equipment, maybe even just do it over a Zoom call and say, okay, what does it look like if we if we frame things in this part of the kitchen? Um, how far away do we need the camera to be? Do we need more than one camera? Uh, what is lighting going to be like? Uh, what's the story with um, daylight and streetlight? Are there different times of day where the room might behave differently? And uh, how does sound work? Are we worried about sound from the street? Uh, are there other things going on inside the same building that we need to plan around? Uh, and there's a lot of that work that sometimes uh, needs to happen for multiple people. If, we, if we're talking about inviting guests to this event, particularly, you know, once a week there's a different guest, then I think it's really important to spend at least an hour, maybe two hours prior to when they're going to be with you to help them through the same questions in their own space, particularly if it's the first time that they've been part of a virtual event uh, that you're bringing them on board with. So that, you know, location scouting, the location is such a, a smart uh, thing to say and such an interesting idea. If restaurants or hospitality folks or retail people are going to be doing it in their space, they're used to being in their own space, but not for this purpose. Belinda, you are um, creating many of your virtual events from your apartment in Chicago. Did you have some similar experiences in terms of location scouting your apartment? <laughs> I have, actually. And over the course of time, the past year, we've done, I think, 140 events at this point. I've located sort of eight individual sites. events out of your apartment? <laughs> That's great. Yes, 140 out of my apartment. Wow. And we sort of identified, um, I think, six locations within my... And it's a small apartment. It's a studio, a Mies van der Rohe studio with 700 square feet. And it's not an ideal kitchen by any means. But I tell you what, I've got Ikea standing desks and all kinds of things, <laughs> 10 sets of lights. David will appreciate this, you know, all that kind of production gear. You know, I, I made it past the just needing the one ring light pretty early on. <laughs> so <laughs> I, I absolutely agree with David. You really have to take the time. And I think to, to really show off your brand and or to really have your message connect, you do have to have some sort of expert in production, someone who can consult on sort of the lighting and all these technical pieces because of course when you're in your own space and your table side your your authenticity and your sort of you know genuine good intent really comes through but it's a whole nother matter when you're on camera how to get that come through and how to get and achieve the level of engagement that you want to get so David we are the kings and queens of tech checks over here I mean we annoy <laughs> all of the guests that we have that join us from their homes and you know 
spend hours having them move around all of their floor lamps <laughs> to make sure that, again, the audience slash guest experience is optimized and as wonderful as it possibly can be. So we've been location scouting not only in my space, but also, like I said, for all the talent that we have join us. And I think that is A plus super important to be a top line on the roadmap. Yeah, definitely. We are going to find out who is helping us stay on point and communicate our message. We are underwritten for this show by a generous sponsor. Heritage Radio Network is kind of like public radio. We're a 501c3 nonprofit, and we keep the lights on and the mics hot out of generosity from our members, who are mostly listeners like you, grants, and underwriters like this one. This episode is brought to you by Just Egg. You can't have plant-based breakfast without a plant-based egg. Just Egg is now the fastest growing egg brand in the United States. Bring more plant-based customers into your doors with easy to use Just Egg. You can get started with a free sample. Just head to ju.st hrn. Made from plants, Just Egg is a better egg for you and for the planet. It's healthier, with no cholesterol and less saturated fat. And it's more sustainable. Just Egg uses less water and generates fewer carbon emissions. Most importantly, it's delicious. For our listeners who operate a food service establishment, you can get a sample for free. Head to ju.st hrn. Just Egg makes a delicious plant-based addition to any menu. It's available as a liquid scramble, Great for omelets, frittatas, stir-fries, and French toast. There's also frozen, pre-baked, folded version that's ideal for filling breakfast sandwiches or topping salads. Chef Jose Andres called Just Egg mind-blowing, and Bon Appetit says, So good, I feel guilty eating it. Put the fastest-growing egg brand on your menu. Get a free sample of Just Egg for your restaurant at ju.st hrn. We are talking about how to produce a successful virtual event, doing online cooking classes, wine tastings, cocktail mixology lessons. All of these things have become new offerings from restaurants and food makers and retailers over the course of the last year in the pandemic. And it's yet another technological skill set that we have to learn and conquer in order to be able to create new revenue streams, keep customers engaged, and move forward. We are about to come up on the one-year anniversary of the global pandemic and things being physically distant. And in the hospitality business, we're still trying to figure out how to keep people socially close. We are having a great conversation with three people who are experts at virtual events from different points of view. Belinda Chang, who is a Chicago-based sommelier, she has made a pretty good business. She did 140 virtual events last year, many from her apartment in Chicago. So she has created a production facility where she lives. We have David Bengali, who is actually a theatrical performance director, producer, lighting, director of photography person who is really taking this from how do you create a live theatrical event online. 
And we also have Kristen Madden with Bowen and Company that produces events across the country for a lot of nonprofits. How do you recreate that wonderful, fancy, high-end gala online? So we just walked through the uh, initial questions that you have to ask. What do you want to do? What are your goals? Why are you hosting these events? Who is your audience? How are you going to determine whether or not this is successful? And now we're getting into the production. Where is it going to be? How does it look? How does it work? How does it move? How does it feel? You know, similar to opening a restaurant, friends and family, try it out. Do test runs. No one makes one dish one time and puts it on the menu. That never happens. It's a trial and error. It's a process. It's rehearse, tweak, iterate, iterate, iterate. So you probably want to do that when you're starting to look for your space in your space. David, talk to us a little bit about initial technologies. I mean, restaurants are not high-tech places. Um, They have more technology now. I often say that the tech level of restaurants is pencil on cocktail napkin. (laughs) (laughs) In spite of all the fancy POS things and the apps. Um, what What type of lights cameras, computers, technology, what what do people need? And when you talk about walking through the space and trying things out, what types of equipment are people using? What's, what's, the, what's the minimum you can get away with doing something successfully and then sort of walk us up through like minimum, good, and best? Sure. Yeah. I think that um, one of the things that one of the biggest challenges actually is that there are now so many choices uh, for what kind of equipment to use, particularly, you know, over the last several months where uh, manufacturers and streaming platforms, et cetera, have all realized that virtual events are um, a really important part of how um, producers and content creators are connecting to their audiences even even without that, streaming has been growing over the last several years. So if you go online and say, okay, I'm looking for a camera, I'm looking for some lights, you're going to find hundreds of choices. Uh, so I think the first step is really to think about the kind of chain of pieces from you to your audience. So you start with you, the person who's going to be presenting, who's going to be on camera or whoever it's going to be, the talent or the um, host or chef or um, other individual. And then the next step in the chain is how are we going to see them? So that's the point where you're going to pick a camera um, and lighting. Um, And we can go back and sort of talk about how you choose those things. But um, the, the next step is how is that camera signal going to get to the internet. Um, and you have some options which are um, very streamlined where it's all happening on a single computer. Uh, everything's plugged into one device and it's all happening from there. There are even some cameras out there where you don't need a computer uh, that um, you can use the camera itself as a streaming platform and it will connect directly to um, various platforms out there. Uh, and then uh, the next step in the chain is how are you going to um, edit what's happening? Is it going to all be live? Are you going to need some kind of software or hardware platform that lets you cut between different camera angles or turn on and off a view of a Zoom stream, um, control audio levels? 
Is it going to be something that has pre-recorded elements that you need to edit and insert into the event? Uh, and then the last step in the, in the chain is how is this being delivered to your audience? Are they going to be in a Zoom call? Are they going to be receiving a Vimeo link? Are they going to be on a ticketed platform with unique logins per customer? Um, and so at each step of that chain, there are some decisions um, to make uh, where asking questions about what kind of event uh, you're trying to create um, and uh, what you want your audience to feel, uh, as Kristen and Belinda were talking about before, will help you answer um, the technology pieces. Um, I, I think that from, for, from my point of view, I just think it's a really great idea whenever possible to try to separate the computer that you're doing the stuff on, as in, you know, controlling a Zoom call or um, uh, controlling pre-recorded media or doing any of that kind of work, to sort of separate that from the computer or device that is actually streaming to your platform. So um, one of the choices out there is OBS. It's um, free. That's why a lot of folks use it. It's a piece of software that lets you take different inputs and then combine those together and stream them to various online platforms. Um, there are also hardware encoders you can get. Some of them are expensive. Some of them are extremely affordable. Um, and uh, it's just a box. It's not even a full computer that can take video and audio signals and connect directly to a streaming platform. Whenever those things are separate from the camera and the computer that is hosting the camera, then if something happens, you know, if the camera goes down or you need to restart this, you know, some of your software, your stream is still live. There's still something going on. You can um, flip over to a, you know, a technical difficulties slide or, or something. Um, and it also means that you're not taking that one computer that you're doing all of the heavy lifting to produce your event on and simultaneously asking it to encode and upload video to the internet, which is actually a pretty demanding thing to have a computer do in high quality. So I think, I feel like that's really important is try to separate those two devices and then sort of work your way out from there, answering all the other questions about what camera do you want to use, one or more than one, how much lighting do you need, et cetera. Those are all really great suggestions and sort of walking through the idea of going from you, the person, to the audience and what those steps are. It's an interesting um, discovery. I was unaware of the fact that there are cameras that cr connect directly to the different platforms and the internet. Are they similar to the smart TVs that we have now where you plug it in and you have Netflix and Amazon Prime and Hulu and everything already loaded in and you just sort of click and and, you know, go into your accounts and then you're connected to all these different platforms already? Is it a similar kind of idea? It, it, it kind of, it kind it sort of tends to work the other way around where um, some of these cameras, like, the, like they'll have an app and you have an account that you can create. Um, and then you know, you would go on to your um, choice of streaming platform and um, well, it can sort of work two ways. One is you would go on to your choice of streaming platform and from there you would log into the app for the camera. Um, but also these cameras tend to be able to sort of publish a stream in a format that is kind of universal. And so um, any 
platform that understands how to talk to that stream. If you give it the address of the stream and the correct login credentials, it can find it and load it the same way that it would um, if you were using another program like uh, OBS or VNet. Can you um, give us uh, just a price range of what these different things cost to the best you know of your ability? I mean, are these cameras that you're talking about, are we talking mm-hmm. about 50 bucks? Are we talking about five grand? What are we talking about? Sure. Yeah, I think, you know, for, for the kind of lower end um, cameras and, uh, and encoders and things like that, you're probably going to want to spend, a, you know, a couple hundred dollars um, for something that is going to give you reliability and uh, high enough image quality. Um, and then lighting, depending on how large of a space you're talking about, if you're just talking about your apartment um, or, you know, like a small kitchen, home kitchen, then a few lights each of which is, you know, $100 or $200, which, as you can see, the cost already starts to increase quickly, um, that'll do it. If you're talking about a larger space or you're talking about you know, looking for um, really high-end uh, cameras, then you could easily start spending in the thousands of dollars. Um, so there's really a range. Uh, and... Uh, and on the software end, as I said, you know, OBS is free. And then there are other programs out there um, that have uh, higher costs where it starts being in, you know, the hundreds of dollars range to give you more control or more reliability, et cetera. Um, and it's also sort of similar for the hardware encoders. There's there's a, a, a hardware encoder that's really great. Um, that's the um, ATEM TV Studio Pro. Um uh, and I think it's I think it's like a five hundred dollar six hundred dollar thing. Um, I may I might be wrong about that. It might be a little bit more. Um, and then you can kind of go up from there to the kind of two three thousand dollar four thousand dollar encoders, which let you plug in six different cameras and take in signals over the internet, etc. So there's really a very very wide range. You could certainly do everything from a laptop with a webcam if you wanted, and that might be something that you already have. Um, but I would say that if you're really trying to create an event, you probably want to at least budget, you know, I would say you want to start with a budget at, at least, you know, one to $2,000 for equipment um, to get past the kind of webcam home Zoom call level of, of quality. Right. To get past the Zoom home cam level of quality, that's that's <laughs> an, that's important. You know, I mean, we go to restaurants not because we can't cook, but because we want a professional experience. So I think that's that's an excellent point, Belinda. When you and I spoke again, talking about putting on virtual events being very similar to opening a new restaurant or creating a new concept within a space. And something that you said that really resonated was, you know, hey, have friends and family. Try it out yep. with people first. So how much, you know, rehearsal do you go through? And certainly rehearsal is something that happens in in the theater. Um, how many times do you run through things, you know? 
I think it's key. Well, you know, we do a lot of different types of virtual experiences, all of us, David and Kristen and myself. So, you know, if it's going to be a a media launch for something, listen, you got to practice that sucker a bunch of times (laughs) to make sure it's really perfect by the time you're presenting it to media. But I think there's another piece of that, and that's, you know, maintaining the authenticity piece. I absolutely agree with David, and I'm hoping he's taking new consulting clients because I need a little Zoom coffee with him. (laughs) to figure out (laughs) what equipment I need to purchase to level up my game here. But I think there's another piece that maybe scares people away from even trying this and or investing in this and or sort of launching a series doing this kind of thing. And that's that they're going to make a mistake. I was just reading some reviews of the virtual Grammy experience. Was that just yesterday or I don't know when it was. That was the Golden Globes. Golden Globes, right. The Golden Globes, right, on Sunday. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So they were sort of giving the awards a a hard time saying that there were mistakes and there were time lags and things like that. But this is virtual experience. This is new. And I think it's almost endearing when something wacky happens from our side, from the people producing these experiences. And you have to not be afraid of that. I've talked to a lot of clients where they insisted on doing pre-record for every part of it. And, you know, in my mind, I'm just thinking, what's the point of that then? You could have just recorded a video and sent that out. Why don't we like let this be real life and let this be real connection and and real engagement? And I think someone alluded to it. Listen, I, I love when you can look into people's homes. I mean, we're all sort of, especially those who have lived in New York, we're, we're all real estate peepers. We love it. We love to see what people's real environments are like. And, and yes, it's even better when they're very well lit and also streamed from a really excellent camera. So I think there's kind of two sides of that. Yes, absolutely. Especially when these are sort of high stakes experiences, you know, some of the ones we do are for, um, you know, entertaining investors. So this is quite high stakes for the person who's the host. And we're trying to help them get to a very real end goal. And yes, the production quality should be as great as you can make it. But also don't let that scare you from doing this because I think in many cases, especially with the restaurants and restaurateurs and the chefs and the bartenders we haven't been able to hang out with for so long, we just want to be able to hang out with them and in some cases support them by just showing up on screen for them and commenting our support while they're going through their cocktail demo or talking about wines or cooking something. So, you know, while yes, I want to sell as many experience boxes and kits as possible for the restaurant clients. I also want to help them just get in the game, (laughs) you know, because the startup cost can be very low to do this and to do it well. Um, and, And yes, practice, 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 practice until that frame looks really great. And that doesn't cost a lot of money. It's a bit of time, but it will give you a better end result. And framing it with the idea of friends and family, if you're in, you know, friends and family, previews, beta, you know, all of those types of things where you have it with a closed audience um, who knows you, who you trust to give you good feedback is really invaluable. Uh, When Kristen and I spoke before the show, Kristen, you do actually do quite a number of events that are produced where you have a produced, edited event or video that is then streamed out to people, but then the live component is in a chat or an engagement or an interaction. So you've done kind of hybrid events. Um, Likewise, 
David, the uh, uh, piece that he's working on now that we spoke about on this show is called Bollywood Kitchen, and it is a tiered event um, where there are some people who are like interactive with the um, host on Zoom. There are people who are watching but get a box, and then there are people who are simply watching it like it's a live broadcast. So they're seeing the real-time interaction of other people, but they're just getting a live stream. So Kristen, talk to us a little bit about how you're combining um, something uh, pre-produced and edited with a a live engagement component. Sure. Um, So I think that, you know, with the those decisions you're making between live and pre-record, um, some of the opportunities with pre-recording are just new ways of storytelling. Um, for instance, in October, we did a virtual event in 20 cities. Um, and so I sat down with all of those 20 chefs who were some of the stars of our program and spent time with them. And so it was like lots of little mini sessions with all of the chefs that then we were able to edit together into different, you know, pieces of themed content throughout the evening. So the pre-recording opportunity gave us a way to tell the story in a different way, um, which is different from the live interaction that you might get. And sometimes we'll have live elements and then pre-recorded elements that can help to enhance the entertainment value of the evening, I would say. Um, But, you know, I think that people do want to interact in some way and they want something happening live. So if you are doing something pre-recorded, there's various opportunities. Um, The one I was speaking of, we had the live chat, which was so fun. We had people from all across the country. Everyone's talking to each other. The chefs are chiming in. The guests are chiming in. And we were having this communal experience together while we're, you know, enjoying the the show and enjoying dining on a meal that's been prepared by 20 chefs across the country, all different meals. So um, people were then posting photographs of the meal that they were enjoying in their city on a live Instagram feed that we brought into the page that we were streaming the broadcast to. So you've got the broadcast that has a mix of live and pre-recorded elements that you're enjoying. There's the live chat where you're interacting with people all over the country. There's the Instagram feed popping up so you can see pictures of what other people are eating in real time. Um, So... Um, and then, of course, there is the the aspect of the dining element, which, um, you know, we layered on to um, speak to in the broadcast of what people are enjoying, you know, in the food and the beverage and it all, you know, linked back to each other. But, um, yeah, it was it was really fun. And I was like, it, it was born out of the thought of boy, something we can't do right now is get together with thousands of people for dinner. And how could we do that? <laughs> so um, so that was, you know, I think the the combination of live and pre-recorded offered us that opportunity. And you had multiple layers using multiple platforms of ways for people to share and engage um, and converse and, and see what the other's doing. You know, that raises an interesting uh, point about virtual events is virtual events allow you to have a scale that you could not have in a brick and mortar restaurant. And Belinda and I spoke about uh, an event that she did a live stream on Twitter, which was a wine 101 class. So wine basics. 
1.4 million people logged on to the live stream, yeah. <laughs> which is amazing. And there's no way she could have organized a real-life in-person Wine 101 class for 1.4 million people simultaneously at the same space. I mean, I can't even, you know, the venue that you would need for that, the glassware, how does that even work? Um, <laughs> <laughs> it, it allows for a scale. So, you know, on the one hand, restaurants are used to thinking about how many people can I seat in my dining room? 50, 100, 200? Here, you know, it's sort of limitless, which is really interesting, provided you just have the bandwidth for the platforms. Um, so, I mean, Belinda, engaging with 1.4 million people, I'm assuming that's the largest wine um, education event you've done to date, just in life. Um, <laughs> c- could you have conceived of, of doing something like that a year ago? No, absolutely not. Um, you know, before that, my record was 1.8 million views for a wine video, but that was over the course of, I think, two years. I was pretty impressed with that. Uh, <laughs> but I know this is, it's so incredible. And I think it's sort of a pandemic positive, if you will, that, you know, we're really breaking down geographical barriers. And now there are so many things that were impossible for that are now possible. And yeah, you know, we had 330,000 some live and then 1.4 people watched over the course of the time it was posted. It still is posted, so it might be even higher now. Yay. But one, how did I not call the Guinness Book of World Records, right? Jen, maybe <laughs> we should have Oh, can that. you retroactively do that? That's interesting. Yeah. Logged have to in, put a but pin you know, that. <laughs> that was months ago and listen, I I needed David back then too. I was terrible. I glued cue cards to my window and I was looking up above my camera and the whole thing was maybe a little whack to the standard now. Um, But it just showed that people are really up for it when you do it well and you present, you know, great information and you have a, you know, I'd like to pat myself on the back like a good presenter that people enjoy listening to and doing something along with. So, you know, in my mind's eye, that was a million and 1.4 million people drinking wine along with me. So, I mean, how cool is that? That's the fun of technology and what's possible in this moment. And I'm just excited that I think this goes beyond the end of the pandemic. I want to keep doing this forever. I never have to leave my apartment. (laughs) Well, and also gives accessibility. And if you're someone who is an educator or presenter or performer, it allows you to have a very one-on-one intimate experience with a million people, which if you were, you know, at the Javits Center, you know, wearing a headset with giant, you know, video monitors and screens doing a wine tasting, it would not be as intimate an experience. The thing that's interesting about this is potentially every single person who participates in the event has the same level of intimacy and experience. Um which, which is a positive and I think part of the reason why virtual events will continue because we've discovered them and now we know. And it opens up a far greater um, number of things to do and participate in than you can do in real life, very much like this show. I used to have guests come to the studio at Roberta's Pizza in Bushwick, Brooklyn. And now I have people on Zencaster, which means I can have people from all over the world come on the show to talk, which is really been uh, one of, as you say, Belinda, pandemic positives. Real quickly before we go, it's not exactly technological, 
But let's talk about getting the boxes to people and cooking along and things like that. Um, all three of you are doing events where people can get stuff to join along. Um, Belinda, what has been your, uh, what are your best tips after a year of trial and error in terms of packing and shipping stuff to people? Oh my God. I mean, we could do a whole few hours on that. (laughs) (laughs) Agreed. Agreed. (laughs) I mean, all of us have probably in past lives and in this life, you know, chased after actual trucks, right? Have you all done that? I mean, in in Aspen and other places, (laughs) now we're just trying to rip things off of trucks going to certain centers that are just... uh... Oh my gosh. I have a story where I'm in a taxi cab in Paris going to like the edges to like a, a FedEx warehouse depot or something like that. To get the twills that were needed for a dish. Just to get the stuff, yeah. I mean, 100%. -hmm. Where's that box? But but I do really think that it's it's a lost opportunity if you don't offer that. I think it's fantastic. Everybody is starved for experience. And, you know, nobody wants to go to the Zoom event where everybody's just staring at their phones. I do love the one when everybody's phone is held up to the screen, meaning that they're taking shots and video to generate (laughs) FOMO for all of their friends who didn't show up and or didn't buy the box. So, you know, I think it's really fun to also make those boxes as interactive as possible. I know, you know, for the cocktail, there's an option to do a pre-mix and then the guest just pours that onto ice. But I love to go through the effort to decant every individual ingredient separately because I think everything that gets people out of their seats and or moving with you generates a better, higher quality experience and engagement. So listen, I make it as as much of a pita, you know, a pain to package (laughs) and unpack as possible because I think that also generates excitement and gives the whole thing energy. Kristen, what are your thoughts on sending the box and the things? Sure. I have a couple of thoughts. One is, as Belinda was hinting at, um, do not underestimate the logistics around (laughs) the delivery or the pickup. You know, it's a very, I would say, be very thoughtful about thinking all the way through that. But, um, you know, I think one of the missed opportunities that I've seen and, you know, I've experienced is just looking at that as a communications touch point. Like, I'm participating in a virtual event as a guest this weekend. And, I received a couple of different packages in the mail this week, and I was mystified as to who was sending me things. I was like, what is this? Why am I getting this? You know, okay. Um, And then, you know, later got an email that was like, you might have received this and this in the mail. And I think um, we're always looking at all the different ways you can, you know, brand and put a personal touch and a note. And it's all part of the experience, just like if you were there live. So, you know, use all of those opportunities to um, continue reinforcing the experience you're creating and the tone you're setting and the personality of the event. Um, Every single piece that's in that box is an opportunity for that. So I would, you know, have fun with that challenge. And I think I'll take I'll build on that and take that one step further. When people are opening a restaurant or planning a retail experience, really good operators think about the entire customer journey. And that's a little marketing speak also, the customer journey. But a really good restaurant operation is going to think about what is the first point of contact with our customer? 
it's when they're going to maybe Google the restaurant and look for information about it, look at reviews. Maybe they're going to go to the website. They're going to look at the menu. Then they're going to get a reservation. Are they going to do that through a service? People don't really pick up the phone and make phone calls anymore, but sometimes they do. What is that like? What happens when they answer the phone? Once you get a reservation and you get into the shoot, what are the different steps of confirmation, walking in the door, sitting down, all those types of things? Restaurant and hospitality people are very, very good at pinpointing a customer experience on a really granular level as they move through the entire experience from point A to point C. And if we lay that type of scrutiny and thoughtfulness and preparedness onto creating a virtual event, it's in essence the same thing. I mean, I think, Belinda, that's what you and I talked about um, in one of our calls that we had before the show. A hundred percent. I agree with you. Absolutely. I mean, I've learned about all the different types of ribbon and which ones ship well. (laughs) Double-faced satin. Double-faced satin is superior to wire ribbon if you want someone to open a luxe experience box, I've learned. So no, no, you're absolutely right. It's it's every touch point. You know, like when I worked in MoMA and we had a little card for every time someone asked what the sculptures were in the sculpture garden at that moment. I mean, it's just thinking of every question and or issue and or moment of delight that you can engineer into the experience box <laughs> as it relates to the virtual experience itself. I mean, all of that is where you really show your skill and make it really incredible. And we are just about out of, we, we're over time, um, but it's such a, 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 so many things to talk about and so many details. But Belinda, when you're talking about the experience that people are having and the surprise and delight, That makes me think about um, uh, a comment and a thought that you had, David, when we spoke earlier, um, and maybe we can wrap up the show with last thoughts from all of you on this topic. David, you talked about how do you create liveness with a virtual event, and liveness is something so critical for theater and performance, but liveness is also an integral part of the dining experience. And, you know, I love to tell the story of the first episode that we did virtually on Tech Bytes in March of 2020. I had a guest on who had been on the show before and she came on and she said, oh, this is so great. This is just like coming home. And it was such an interesting comment to me because One, she was actually at home, but her home. (laughs) Two, I was at home. But there was something about being in a conversation together that was familiar with a structure and a place and maybe the, the music and the way that we talk and the flow of the conversation that had this intangible Um, quality that was a visceral reaction for her that put her in the studio or at that place or on Tech Bytes. And it was so interesting to me. But I think that that's what, you know, if I were to try and describe what liveness is or what that intangible connection is that we have to groups of people in physical places, I think it's visceral. I think it's hard to explain. But if you can figure out what it is and capture it, then you can really capture audience and people and and build business and really grow the experience. So how do you, how, what, what is your best recommendation or your thoughts about 
how do you communicate that liveness through a virtual event? Well, I, I think that um, one piece of it is to this goes back to what um, uh, we were talking about at the very beginning of, of this conversation about identifying the kind of story you want to tell and the kind of experience you want to create. And I think that um, it can feel very overwhelming to produce a virtual event, particularly if it's not something you've done before. And yet so many of the pieces of that event like, can be things that you already really know very well. Ultimately, you're trying to share yourself, your own brand, your own restaurant, your own storytelling techniques that you've been using from well before taking the leap into virtual uh, and leaning on those things and saying, how can I bring that into someone else's home? Uh, I think can be very successful rather than saying, oh my gosh, I have to create something that's completely new that I've never done before. Uh, and that can leave you or leave your audience with a real feeling of, of authenticity and connection. That's great advice. Kristen, what would you say your top most important piece of advice is to producing a successful virtual event? Um, I think that it really comes, I mean, on a technical end, I agree with David, all the details matter that you would apply to a live event, but from just like a human standpoint and responding to liveness, I think it's about connection and inspiration and vulnerability. <laughs> so I think it is about letting people in and um, really showing that audience member, that person who's joining, that you see them and you care about them and, um, you know, looking for ways in your storytelling to keep it personal and um, and keep people engaged and inspired. I think we all want to feel something right now. And whether it's laughing or being inspired or getting my tissue, it's just like, I like feeling things with other humans right now. And I think there's a great opportunity in the virtual world to do that. Belinda, what are your best tips for creating an amazing virtual event? I love that, what Kristen said. But also I, I can tell, not having met everyone here, that everybody here is great at throwing a dinner party, right? You know, like you said, what we do in restaurants and what we do in, you know, producing in real life events is inviting people into our spaces, whether they're temporarily ours or permanently ours, and we make them feel wonderful and important and we bring whatever magic we have to bear. So I think in translating that to virtual experience, you do the same thing. Invite people into your home and make it just magical. Make them feel so important and try to think of everything that you can to make the experience wonderful for them. I mean, we're we're in the business here through all of these different types of experience to try and bring some joy in a in a tough time. So do that and it will work. <laughs> well, I hope that we've done that today. I hope that we've brought some joy and hopefully some good advice. And maybe if you've listened to this episode and you were thinking about doing a virtual event, maybe you feel like you have some information and some ideas to kind of take the plunge and give it a try. If you are going to do a virtual event or if you want to get in touch with some of the people who spoke today or you just have some thoughts, reach out, get in touch with us. We are very interactive. You can email us techbytes at hrn. TechBytes at heritageradionetwork.org. You can find us on social media at TechBytesHRN. I want to thank Belinda Chang, Samoyer, Chicago-based virtual events extraordinaire. I want to thank David Bengali, who is in production, in theater. David, where can people get in touch with you or see you or find your work if they'd like to? 
Um, if they uh, visit my website, uh, davidbengali.com, they can find me that way. Perfect. And Kristen Madden at Bowen and Company, bowenandcompany.com. I want to thank everyone for joining us today and sharing their tips. I want to thank all of our listeners, grants, underwriters, the amazing staff at Heritage Radio Network, who has kept us all virtually on the air. I'm Jennifer Leitze, and this is Tech Bytes. Tech Bytes is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to learn more about our 10-year anniversary celebration happening all year long, subscribe to our newsletter. Just enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.